Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Thank you for joining us for another study of the Book of Romans from a full preterist perspective. Last time, we looked at the subject of baptism as it is dealt with in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Many preterists have tossed baptism aside as a relic of the past. We showed why I believe that is throwing baptism out with the bathwater, i.e., throwing the good out with the bad. There definitely still is a valid place for water baptism in the church today after the eternal kingdom arrived in AD 70. We saw that it is a testimony before the world and the church that we have put our faith in Christ to wash away our sins and give us a new life spiritually. It is a sign of the covenant and a symbol of our purification by repentance to walk in newness of life. We have died with Christ to that old way of life. It was buried with Christ, and we were raised to walk in newness of life. We were born again, or born from above. We died and are now risen with Christ. All of these ideas are pictured for us in water baptism. We noted that the description of baptism as a burial, here in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, necessarily implies that water baptism was an immersion and not a sprinkling, since a sprinkling simply does not fit the symbolism of a burial. There is a PDF available which traces the origin of Christian baptism. It is entitled, Origin of Baptism. You may get that PDF simply by emailing me and requesting it. This time, we're going to be looking at the meaning of the word body, as Paul used it here in his epistle to the Romans. The word body is used in several phrases here in Romans, and we're going to look at those as we look at all 13 of the occurrences of the word body here in the book of Romans. And we want to look at each of those in their context. Before we get started, however, let's ask God's blessing on our study. Father of our Savior and Redeemer and Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for choosing us and showering your mercy and grace upon us, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins and totally unworthy of your redemption. We especially ask for your help in our study of your bondservant Paul's letter to the dear saints in Rome who suffered horribly in the Neuronic persecution just six years after Paul wrote this letter to them, and less than two years after he was there in prison in Rome. Help us to clearly understand what your Holy Spirit was communicating through Paul to those fellow saints in Rome, and help us properly apply it to our lives today, so that we will deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the world around us. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen. This week, in addition to my analysis of the biblical text of Romans, I did a lot of reading in several books 
by both collective body advocates and individual body advocates, including Max King's big book, The Cross and the Parousia, John A.T. Robinson's book on the body, Tom Holland's book on the contours, and Dave Green's House Divided book. Uh, he's co-author with Mike Sullivan and Ed Hassert and Sam Frost in that book, House Divided, as well as uh, Robert H. Gundry's book, Soma, dealing with the Greek word body there in all of Paul's writings. Plus, I read uh, a few pages out of several of the standard commentaries dealing with Romans chapters 5 through 8. One thing that all that reading did for me was to confirm the utter impossibility of the collective body concept being the correct interpretation approach here in Romans 5 through 8. In coming weeks, I will probably interact with some of those writers on both sides of the issue. In this lesson, however, I want to focus primarily on what Paul has to say about the body here in Romans chapters 5 through 8. The best way to understand what happened in a hockey game is to be there in person and watch the action start to finish. That way we have the context of the whole game to help us understand every part of the game. That is far better than listening to the radio commentators. As good as they are in their explanations, they simply cannot compare to watching the game in person in the arena. The same holds true for commentaries on the book of Romans. While the commentaries are immensely helpful in a lot of ways, they simply cannot replace the understanding we can gain simply by listening to Paul himself, in context, explain what he means. So before we look at what others are saying about Paul and his book of Romans, we need to know what Paul himself says about his book, straight from the horse's mouth as they would say in Texas. The only sure way to get an understanding of an idea or concept is to go to the original source of it. That is the proper place to begin. It's not an exaggeration to say that understanding Romans chapters 5 through 8 correctly depends in large measure on knowing what Paul's definition of the word body is and how he is using the word body here in the context of Romans. That is where I focused in my studies of these chapters, and I believe it will be helpful for us here as well. We need to know what Paul means when he uses the word body here in Romans. Many cults, heresies, and defective theologies have been based on a misunderstanding of Romans. And the same thing is true even within preterism. Both the collective body and the individual body views use the book of Romans as support for their respective paradigms. Anyone who wishes to correctly understand Christian theology must get a firm grasp on what Paul is teaching here in Romans, especially in regard to his use of the word body. So that is where we're going to focus in this lesson. What is Paul's definition of body here in Romans chapters 5 through 8? 
The Greek word soma, or body, occurs 142 times in 120 verses in our New Testament, using several different definitions and senses. Here is the list of those verses which use the word body, with Paul's usage in Romans, and there's 13 of those that are highlighted here in red ink. If you have the lesson outline, you can see that. The standard Greek lexicon used by all New Testament scholars, which is Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, it's abbreviated B-D-A-G, B-D-A-G, you'll hear Greek scholars in their lectures refer to it as B-D-A-G. It gives five primary definitions to the word soma in its 142 uses in our New Testament. And I've highlighted two of those definitions Uh, one of them in yellow and the other one in blue, because those are the only two definitions that really apply to their uses of body here in the book of Romans. The first definition he gives in Bedag is the body of a human being or animal. And he says that the word body is a good translation for uh, that particular use of the Greek word soma. And he gives two subheadings underneath that definition, one of a dead body and another of a living body. And it's interesting then in reference to the living body, which is speaking of an individual body, a physical body of a human being or an animal. In reference to the individual physical body, he lists 10 of those references in Romans that we have in red ink above on the outline. Ten of those references, Romans one twenty four, Romans 8, verse 10, Romans 8, verse 13, Romans 12, verse 4, Romans 4, verse 19, Romans 12, verse 1, Romans 6, verse 6, Romans 7, 24, Romans 8, 11, and Romans 7, verse 4. There's 10 of those verses there in that list of 13 that this lexicon lists as an individual physical body. Then under definition number 5, which is a unified group of people or a body of people, uh, as in the Christian community or church, collective body is the idea. Definition number 5 is a collective body usage of the word body. And here under that definition, he lists one of the 13 verses in Romans which use the word body as referring to a collective body. Romans 12, verse 5. The first and fifth definitions here in Bedag are the only two that really apply to our study of Romans. Definition number one is the individual physical body definition. And then definition number five is the collective body definition. Notice that ten of the thirteen verses in Romans which use the word body are assigned to the first definition, which is the individual body. And I have a list of those here in yellow highlight. Romans one twenty four, Romans 4.19. Romans 6, 6, Romans 7, 4, Romans 7, 24, Romans 8, 10, Romans 8, 11, Romans 8, 13, Romans 12, verse 1, and Romans 12, verse 4. Only one verse 
was assigned to the fifth definition or the collective body idea, and that was Romans 12, verse 5. That leaves two other verses which were not assigned to one of these two definitions here in BDAG. Romans 6, verse 12, which mentions your mortal body, and Romans 8, 23, which mentions redemption of our body. However, Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is another standard lexical reference tool for scholars in the Greek language, Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament assigns both of these verses, Romans 6.12 and Romans 8.23, to the individual category. And just like Bedag and Mounts, Kittle's only assigns one verse, Romans 12, verse 5, to the collective body category. So here we have three of the major Greek lexicons that are used by all scholars in the English language assigning 12 of these references to the body in Romans to the individual body category. They only assign one verse out of the 13 to the collective body category. Very interesting there. So what we need to point out here is that this means that the collective body guys are going against all the standard major scholarly lexical works when they suggest that 10 or 12 of these references here in Romans should be put in the category of the collective body. None of these lexicons do that, and so they're going up against all the lexical authorities by pushing that collective body definition into 10 or more of those 13 references in the book of Romans. Well, we need to ask, how does Paul use the word body in Romans? We noticed how Bedag assigned those definitions of soma to the 13 occurrences of body in Romans. We've color-coded those occurrences to show which definitions Bedag assigned to each one of these 13 texts. The first 12 occurrences here in Romans were assigned to the individual physical body definition, while only the last one, chapter 12, verse 5, was assigned to the collective body definition. We need to look at every one of these 13 references in their context to verify that they indeed have the meaning that these Greek lexicons are assigning to them. And let's look at them briefly here. I want to look especially at the phrase that I've put in red ink here in each of these 13 verses. Notice how the word body is used in these particular phrases in these 13 verses. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies, there is plural, bodies is plural, would be dishonored among them. And notice again that the bodies is plural there. Their bodies obviously is not speaking of a single collective body, but is in fact speaking of numerous individual bodies. So there's an individual application there in that verse. It'd be very difficult to get around that. But you'd be surprised at how some of the collective body guys try to get around that and use that verse as a collective body text. In Romans 4.19, though, is another individual text. Notice it says, in reference to Abraham, 
without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Again, it's very clear in the context. We don't even have to go around to the verses outside of verse 19 here to get the sense of it. Right here in the same verse, Romans 4.19, it's very clear that it's referring to Abraham's physical, individual body. It's not referring to a collective body. It's referring to Abraham's individual, physical body. Now in Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The collective body advocates see this usage of a plural hour with a singular body as a strong argument for a collective body here in this text. However, in our previous podcast on the phrase our lowly body, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, we show that this usage of a plural possessive personal pronoun, our, with a singular noun, body, is very common in Koine Greek of the first century, as well as in the New Testament and Paul's writings especially. It does not indicate a collective body at all. It simply meant that each of the persons indicated in the plural hour, had his own individual body. Furthermore, the connection of the phrase of sin to our body here in Romans 6 verse 6 indicates a control over our bodies by sin. It is not an adjectival use of sin here as in our sinful body, but rather a possessive use of sin as in sin's control or rule over our bodies. Sin was the master over our bodies before we became Christians. But now that we have died to sin, sin is no longer our master. Our bodies are no longer owned, controlled, or ruled over by sin. In Christ, our bodies are no longer under the dominion of, the domination of, or in slavery to, sin as our master. Then in Romans chapter 6 verse 12, Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. Here again we see that plural possessive personal pronoun your used in combination with a singular noun mortal body. We showed in that previous podcast on Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that this is a very common usage in New Testament Greek and is not referring to a collective body, but rather to each of the individuals in the your group having their own individual mortal body. The individual body meaning will be even more clear to us when we look at the whole context surrounding this verse. And we'll do that probably in our next session, uh, if we can get to that verse. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says this, another one of the body texts. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, 
to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The reason I do not take this reference to the body of Christ as a collective body, even though it can be taken that way, because as we know in the book of Ephesians, it mentions uh, the body of Christ in a collective sense there. And so it's certainly possible to take that phrase, the body of Christ, as it's used here in Romans 7 verse 4 in a collective way. And the reason I don't take this reference to the body of Christ as a collective body is because it is clearly referring to the body in which Christ died on the cross and was raised. That is definitely referring to his individual physical body, not to the church as his body. To make this into a collective body, we would be doing what the liberal scholars have tried to do, such as John A.T. Robinson and others, by removing the scandal of the physical resurrection of Jesus and replacing it with a resurrection of the church or some other metaphorical concept like his memory was resurrected in their thoughts later. That appears to be one of the reasons why John A.T. Robinson suggested a collective body application of this text in order to downplay or remove the physical body resurrection of Jesus from the historical scenario. However, the reference to Christ's individual physical body is clearly in view here and cannot be erased or redefined by the collective body approach without negating the physical death of Christ's physical body here in this text. We will see this even more clearly when we get into the context in our next few sessions. Now in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Or the body of this death, some translations read. The key to seeing this reference to the body as an individual usage is found in the surrounding verses of the context, which we're going to look at in some of the coming sessions. But in brief, this is simply another example of the possessive and not descriptive use of the phrase of this death, like we saw in this body of sin or the body of sin up in chapter 6, verse 6, Uh, It's a similar idea here in the body of this death because it's referring to death just like it referred to sin in the sense that death was ruling or dominating or controlling our individual bodies. So in brief, this is simply another example of that possessive and not descriptive or adjectival use of the phrase of this death like we saw in Romans 6, verse 6, where it referred to our bodies being possessed or controlled or enslaved by sin. Here, Paul is talking about death personified, owning his body because of his enslavement to sin. In the context, he is merely restating the gospel when he points out that Christ died on our behalf in order to redeem us back from our enslavement to sin and death. Because of sin, Paul's body was owned by death and doomed to die. Not only physical death, which is the first death, but eternal death or second death as well. 
But Jesus redeemed him and all of the saints from death's grip so that physical death no longer had any power to push us into eternal death. Now in Romans chapter 8 verse 10, Paul says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Here Paul points out that our bodies are subject to physical death, the first death, because of sin. That is because of the law of sin and death. If we sin, we have to die. And that physical death puts us under the dominion of eternal death unless a Redeemer intervenes. By dying with Christ and receiving His Spirit to indwell us, our spirits are quickened or made alive so that physical death no longer puts us under the control of eternal death. So even though our physical bodies still have to die because of our sinfulness, our spirits do not suffer the second death, which is eternal death. Our spirits have been made alive so that we can escape eternal death and live forever with God. Now in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, which is the next verse here in our list, and it's also the next verse after the one we just looked at, Romans 8, verse 10, In Romans 8, verse 11, Paul says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, plural, and that you there is plural, He who raised Christ Jesus from out of the dead ones, which is plural, will also give life to your, plural, mortal bodies, plural, through His Spirit who dwells in you. Did you notice the plural usage of bodies here? This is talking about a bunch of individual bodies, not one big collective body. This is a real difficult text for the collective body view. You would be amazed at the hermeneutical gymnastics in which they have to engage in order to get around the implications of this plural use of bodies. Some of them have been willing to admit that it is referring to individual bodies being given spiritual life, but most of them try to twist it somehow to make it fit into their collective body paradigm. We call that eisegesis, not exegesis. When we put our own preferred meaning into the text, rather than drawing the real meaning out of the text, The collective body interpreters are letting the demands of their paradigm dictate their interpretation of this text. Yet they are the ones who insist that the singular plural usage of body or bodies absolutely determines without exception whether it is an individual or collective body. Well, if their claim is true, then how can they get around the implications of the plural body's usage here? Their own rule will trip them up. Furthermore, the individual body interpretation of this verse directly relates to the deeds of the body two verses later in Romans 8, verse 13, as we'll see next. In Romans 8, verse 13, Paul says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you are about to die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As we noted in the previous text, Romans 8 verse 11, there is a direct and inseparable connection between verse 11 and verse 13. Paul is here in verse 13 talking to the same group of individual saints that he had addressed two verses earlier, each of whom had their own individual mortal bodies, plural, and who were now being exhorted by Apostle Paul to put to death the sinful deeds of their individual bodies. In that effect, he was exhorting them to put to death or mortify a sinful lifestyle that is lived according to the flesh, and instead live according to the Spirit who was indwelling them. They put to death, or mortified, the deeds of their individual bodies by repenting of that evil way of life and following the way of righteousness into which the Spirit was leading them. This is clearly talking about individual mortification of a fleshly lifestyle, not about the dying, rising reciprocity of a collective body. We also need to note that this idea of putting to death the deeds of the body is referred to repeatedly throughout the preceding context by such phrases as died to sin in chapter 6 verse 2, reckon yourselves indeed to be dead to sin, chapter 6, verse 11. Do not let sin reign, chapter 6, verse 12. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, chapter 6, verse 13. And do not walk according to the flesh, chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. So it does not take a lot of guesswork to figure out what Paul means here in Romans 8.13 when he urges those Roman saints to put to death or mortify the kind of deeds that were associated with their former fleshly-oriented lifestyle outside of Christ. Now, ten verses later, in Romans 8, verse 23, Paul says this, And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Note the usage of the phrase, our body. Of course, the our there is plural and the body is singular. We have seen this particular grammatical construction used many times throughout the New Testament, most of which are in a clearly individual body context. We saw this especially in our previous podcast that dealt with the phrase, our lowly body, in Philippians chapter 3.21. Since we have already established that the previous context leading up to verse 23 is focused on the individual saints, It would be a serious break with that context to assign a collective body meaning to this phrase here in chapter 8, verse 23. Furthermore, in previous podcasts, we have also shown what this redemption of the bodies of the individual living saints is talking about. Paul is referring to the glory 
that was about to be revealed. Chapter 8, verse 18, which is about five verses before this, he said, The glory that was about to be revealed to those saints who would live and remain until the parousia, at which time their bodies would be redeemed from having to experience physical death, and they would be redeemed by being changed or transformed from mortal to immortal, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52, as well as in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. So this redemption of their individual bodies is referring to the bodily change that occurred at the parousia, at which time they were caught up together with the resurrected dead saints to be with Christ forever afterwards. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. That indeed was a very glorious redemption that was about to be revealed to them, not worthy to be compared to the horrendous sufferings that those Roman saints were about to experience during the Neuronic persecution just six years after this letter was written. The glorious redemption would be far greater than any of the sufferings and all of the sufferings that they had to go through in the Neuronic persecution. And that's what Paul means here when he talks about this glory that is about to be revealed. He says, our sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. And that glory was to be changed, to have your living body changed without having to experience physical death and to be caught up into the presence of Christ, to live with him forever afterwards. So that was the redemption of their individual bodies that Paul is talking about here in Romans 8, verse 23. It was not a redemption of a collective body, but a redemption of their individual bodies. Those saints suffered horribly in the Neuronic persecution. They earned and deserved such a great reward as this. We pitifully spoiled, rotten, American Christians certainly do not deserve such a reward. We have little clue what that kind of suffering is all about. That is why Paul's exhortations here to put to death and mortify the evil deeds of our sinful worldly lifestyles is still relevant to us today. We need that exhortation every bit as much as the first century saints needed it. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Then in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I've heard some of the collective body guys twist this text into talking about a collective body. It's no surprise that if they have a a real challenge in order to do it, because the word bodies here in Romans 12 verse 1 is plural, obviously talking about individual bodies, but You'd never know it to hear some of these collective body guys talk about this verse. They apply it to the collective body. They twist it every which way in order to make it fit into their collective body paradigm. 
But notice the plural usage of bodies here. This cannot be referring to one big singular collective body presenting itself as a sacrifice to God, but rather to individual Christians offering up their individual bodies as clean, pure, holy, and righteous sacrifices to God in service to Him. You would think that the collective body advocates would admit the individual implications of this usage of the plural form of bodies, but they are compelled by the demands of their paradigm to interpret it as a reference to the collective body. In their case, it appears that eisegesis, unproven assumptions, and circular reasoning strikes again. They are so desperate to support their collective body paradigm that they see a collective body under every rock and behind every tree, regardless of whether it is actually there or not. It is indeed found in some soteriological and eschatological text, but not in all of them, and certainly not in this one. Then in our final two texts that deal with the word body in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, Paul says this, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The analogy that Paul sets up here in verses 4 and 5 is for the purpose of comparing the individual physical body to the collective body of the church. Verse 5 is clearly talking about the church as being a collective body composed of many members or body parts. The body analogy is appropriately used in this context to teach the saints how a collective body of people is supposed to function. It is like teamwork in any sport. If the individual members of the team do not function as a team, they will never win their games. It's the same way in the church. Each member of the church must function in a way that promotes the building up or edification of the whole body. When one part of our bodies malfunctions, the whole body suffers. That is the principle that Paul is teaching here in this body analogy. Chapter 12 is not a soteriological or eschatological context, but instead a sanctification and edification context. Therefore, it is not talking about a collective body going through some kind of dying, rising reciprocity or eschatological change during the transition period. That idea is totally foreign to this context and has to be imported or forced into the text before it can be found here. There are plenty of texts that have a collective body application without us inventing more of them, such as Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians and Colossians. All of those have valid ecclesiological collective body applications in them, just like this text does which is talking about an ecclesiological or church collective body, not in an eschatological way, but in a church structure way or a church function way. 
We individual body guys do not deny that there are some texts which talk about a collective body in some kind of ecclesiological, soteriological, or eschatological sense. Nor do we go overboard in pushing the individual body concept into text where it does not belong. Instead, all of us need to remember that the fundamental task of every Bible interpreter is to draw out of each text as accurately as possible only what the original author intended to communicate to his original audience and never force our own interpretation into the text. Well, now that we've looked at all 13 of these body texts here in the book of Romans and briefly surveyed them, Some of us might be wondering at this point which of these 13 occurrences of body in the book of Romans do the collective body guys apply to a collective body interpretation. It might surprise you to know that some of them apply the collective body concept to every one of these body texts in Romans except chapter 4 verse 19 and perhaps 8, 11 and 12.4. That still leaves 10 of those texts applied in a collective body way. There are some who take it that far. Do you see a problem with that? I surely do. And we're going to point that problem out in coming sessions as we get deeper into the context of each of these 13 body texts here in Romans. Well, all I wanted to do in this session was to survey those 13 texts which use the word body here in Romans. I wanted to give us a brief introduction to each of these texts so that we'll be somewhat familiar with them before digging deeper into their contextual meaning in future sessions. We need to understand that both individual and collective body views believe in both kinds of bodies. The collective body guys do, and the individual body guys do. Both of us, both views, believe that there are both kinds of bodies represented in our New Testament. And both views agree that the concept of a collective body presupposes the existence of an individual body with which to compare it. We saw an example of that right here in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 where Paul talked about the human body with its many parts being the pattern for the church with its many members. Furthermore, there are a number of biblical texts which both views agreeably assign to the same individual or collective category. So the big difference, then, between our two views is regarding those texts which we assign to different categories. For instance, some of these texts here in Romans, uh, I would apply them in an individual sense, and they would apply them in a collective sense. So that's the differences between the view, is in how we assign a collective body or individual body meaning to each of these texts. Both views are tempted to assign every eschatological resurrection text to its own particular category. But as we have seen here in this lesson, that simply will not work. 
there are too many exceptions to the rule. There are too many individual body texts and too many collective body texts. Neither extreme will work. The truth lies somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. We can't have all those texts apply to an individual body, nor can we have them all apply to a collective body. All of us have the obligation to use proper hermeneutical rules and exegetical tools to determine which category each text belongs in. The context is the most critical factor in that analysis, and that is what we're laser-focused on in these studies of Romans. All of us have the obligation to be Bereans and search the scriptures to make sure our interpretations are in harmony with the context. We mentioned the words mortification and sanctification earlier in this session. Of course, sanctification is talking about pursuing after holiness in our lifestyle. I remember the first time I heard the phrase mortification of our bodies. I thought it was talking about what the morticians do to our bodies in the mortuary, that is, prepare them for burial. Seemed logical to me. But that's not the biblical definition of mortification at all. Paul was talking about mortification when he exhorted the Roman Christians to put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8 verse 13. In other words, stop giving in to temptation. Die in relationship to sin. And stop letting sin rule your life. Follow the leading of the Spirit instead. Resist and reject and push away from the sinful temptations that the world and our fleshly bodies keep throwing at us. Quit listening to the worldly voices and start listening to the voice of God in His Word. That might mean for some of us to turn off our iPods and turn on our Bibles. That would be a good thing. And that's what Paul is talking about here in regard to mortification of the deeds of our bodies. Put to death those things that are taking our bodies in the wrong direction. Stop listening to those voices that are taking us in the wrong direction. And start listening to the voice of God in His Word. As Christians, we have died to sin and died to the flesh and have been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ, following the impulses of God's Spirit, rather than giving in to the temptations of the flesh. That is what Paul means by mortification of the body, killing or mortifying the influence of sin over our lives, by dying daily to that old sinful lifestyle and rising above it, to follow the leading of the Spirit in our pursuit of holiness or sanctification. When individuals become Christians, they die to sin and pursue after sanctification. That is the kind of language we see Paul using here in the context surrounding several of these body texts. It is very individualistic language. Paul is urging those individual saints to mortify or kill the fleshly influence 
in their lives and pursue after sanctification in their individual bodies. He is not talking about mortification and sanctification of a collective body. And this is an extremely important point that must not get lost in the shuffle. The motivation, the whole motivation, for each of those individual Roman saints to persevere in their faith by mortification of their fleshly desires and sanctification of their bodies is eliminated when the word body here in Romans is collectivized. It makes nonsense out of those moral and ethical exhortations that Paul delivers to those individual saints. It means that the individual is not bound to mortify his own individual flesh and pursue after individual sanctification, since that is only for the collective body, according to our fellow preterists who take the collective body view. Now, maybe that idea of applying all these moral and ethical exhortations to the collective body doesn't bother the collective body guys. But it strikes terror in my soul. And I have to believe that Paul would have been horrified at the thought of it as well. The collective body application of these texts would remove all the moral and ethical restrictions that Paul gives to those individual Christians there at Rome. Maybe that is why we see so much bad fruit coming from the lives of those who hold the collective body view. Maybe they have noticed that the collective interpretation of all the body text removes the obligation for individual Christians to live holy lives. Maybe that is why the collective body view is so popular among universalists and antinomians especially. They do not think the moral and ethical restraints of the Bible apply to them as individuals. They think it's all about the collective body now. That may be why some of them take the heaven now and immortal body now and perfection now views. It also explains why some of them believe the continuation of sinning in heaven idea. When we disengage the moral and ethical restraints from the individual Christian and apply them only to the collective body, we have just eliminated all motivation for the individual Christian to live a holy life. So you can see why I'm very anxious to clarify this issue for all of us. I have seen too many of my fellow preterists being led astray by the dangerous moral and ethical implications of the collective body view. It offers a false hope and a false sense of security for those who are living in an unholy lifestyle. The way we interpret these references to the body has significant impact on the moral, ethical, and spiritual exhortations that Paul gives to the saints here in Romans. If the collective body view is the correct interpretation of all these body texts, then the moral, ethical, spiritual exhortations only apply to the collective body and have no relevance to the individual Christian today. That's a very disturbing implication, and I hope it disturbs you as much as it does me. Thank God the collective body view is not right about that.
Christians today are just as much obligated to pursue after godliness and holiness as they were before 70 A.D. The moral and ethical restraints and exhortations are just as applicable to us today as they were to the first century saints. The destruction of Jerusalem did not change that, nor can the relativistic culture around us ever change it. These biblical, moral, and ethical principles are absolutely true and relevant for all generations of the age of the ages, as it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. So, when we hear some preterist teacher use the collective body view to question or downplay or reinterpret or eliminate those moral and ethical principles and exhortations and apply them to a collective body, It ought to be cause for pause. It ought to at least raise a yellow caution flag for us, if not a red flag. I hope that helps you see what is at stake here in our understanding of the book of Romans. Apostle Paul did not hold back from teaching us the hard truth about what godliness and holiness is all about. Don't let anyone especially fellow preterists, deceive you into thinking that the moral, ethical, and spiritual exhortations in Scripture are no longer relevant to Christians today. They are supremely relevant, and our soul salvation depends on it. Pursue after sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord in the afterlife. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Well, that will do it for this session. Next time, we're going to dig a little deeper into the context of some of those body texts here in Romans to see what Paul was really saying to those first century Christians. And I think as we dig into the context, we'll see that they are, in fact, individual body text. Well, that'll do it for this session. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.